Welcome back to another episode of the Leading Saints Podcast. If you've enjoyed content on this podcast, it's important that I tell you about the Leading Saints newsletter that we send out every week. This newsletter keeps you up to date on all the current Leading Saints content releases, including podcasts, articles, online events, and even live events that might be happening in your own area. In this newsletter, we also recommend some past episodes and written articles that you don't want to miss. Each week, we include additional leadership perspectives and thoughts that you can only find in the weekly newsletter, so you definitely don't want to miss out. To subscribe to the weekly newsletter, simply text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash subscribe so you don't miss any future Leading Saints content. Welcome back to the Leading Saints podcast. My name is Kurt Frankham. I will be your host as always. If you're new to Leading Saints, well, what you found here is a hopefully engaging podcast where we talk all things leadership in the context of being a Latter-day Saint. In fact, that's our mission to help Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. We're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and uh, this is one of the many resources we do, this podcast, but we also have articles at leadingsaints.org. We have a phenomenal newsletter that if you're not receiving, come on, be part of the club here. Just go put your email in at leadingsaints.org slash subscribe. And that way you'll hear from us about every Tuesday where we share unique leadership content there. But we're just glad you found us. And this is one example of the type of topics that we're not afraid of discussing, and that is private bishop interviews. Uh, This has been a hot topic the last few years in our religious community. There's been a lot of critics of the church and the way that we do things that have some strong opinions about this tradition we have of adult leaders meeting with youth on a one-to-one basis, often in a, in a private setting. And I came across through the help of Fair Mormon. If you're not familiar with Fair Mormon, they're a phenomenal organization, apologetics for the church and our history and and doctrine, and they're great. You can find more information at fairmormon.org. But Jennifer Roach recently spoke at their Fair Mormon conference. And the minute she got up, I thought, I have got to interview her. And her topic was private bishop interviews as a protective factor. Why LDS teens benefit from a few moments alone with their bishop. And her research and the perspective she brings is so helpful because no bishop out there is looking to be a creeper, is looking to have inappropriate conversations with with teen we with teens. We simply want to help, especially if there is abuse involved, and maybe we can be part of the the movement to get them to come forward with that information so that we can protect them and and make sure everybody's safe. And so Jennifer and I had a remarkable conversation, which you're about to hear, about this dynamic. And she shares four reasons why these type of interviews should continue. And then we talked just about youth leaders in general, how we can create more protection, but also create opportunities for youth to leave breadcrumbs of abuse if, if they're there, that they can close that in some form early. Because she shares in this interview, I can't believe it, the average age that people disclose of past abuse is 52 years old. And man, I hope that we can get more of that happening sooner in life so that we can get the help and treatment to handle and reconcile this trauma in their life so they can have a 
positive experience and mortality that leads them towards Christ and heals them. So Jennifer Roach earned a Master's of Divinity from the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology and a Master's of Counseling from Argosa University. Before her conversion to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, she was an ordained minister in the Anglican Church. Her own experience of sexual abuse from a pastor during her teen years led her to care deeply about issues of abuse in faith communities. So you're going to love this interview. Here's my interview with Jennifer Roach. Today, I have the opportunity to sit down with Jennifer Roach. How are you, Jennifer? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Well, I'm excited to connect, and we caught you while you were in town, and I always prefer meeting in person when we can. Yep. And so my introduction to you was, I generally attend the, the Fair Mormon Conference every year. If you're not familiar with Fair Mormon, those listening, uh, you can go to fairmormon.org and they have credible resources from an intellectual perspective, from research perspective, especially with sticky questions historically related and all sorts. I'm not doing a good advertisement for it, but you get the idea. You should go check it out. And uh, so I attend their conference and obviously it was online this year. And she started speaking, and I thought, wait a minute, she's speaking <laughs> at the wrong conference. It's supposed to be my conference. But obviously, I'm glad you're, you're speaking and getting the message out there, because you were talking about bishop interviews yep, and the benefit of actually bishop interviews with youth. Yeah. And uh, so we're going to dive into that. But first, let's talk about your story a little bit, because one thing is they introduced you at Fair Mormon. You're a member of the church about 18 months. Yeah, about a year and a half ago, I got baptized. And I know you recently interviewed, uh, which will be released uh, prior, uh, several weeks before this one, with uh, Sean Rapier over at Latter-day Live. So if you want all the details, yes, that's a good place to go. But give yes. us the this, this summary. And because your background, you were a pastor? Was yeah. That right? So I have a Master in Divinity. I got ordained in the Anglican denomination, and I was working in just regular Christian churches when I started to read the Book of Mormon. So how do you just start to read the Book of Mormon? Uh, you know, what had happened was I was involved in a lawsuit in California against the church where I grew up. I had experienced sexual abuse in that church, and this lawsuit was getting written about in the papers. And one of the main reporters who was writing about me is a member of the church. And through the course of— uh, Member of the Latter Church of, of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Latter Saints, Saints, right? Yes. Okay. Um, and, and I knew that about him, and it didn't— phase me in any way. It wasn't important to me in any way at first. Like, okay, I wasn't unhappy in my church. I was, I wasn't looking for anything. And at some point during this lawsuit, the church that I'm suing, the pastor gives a response to this lawsuit by preaching a sermon about Moses. And so this reporter and I were going to meet on the phone to talk about it after we'd listened to it. So we both listened and I was so upset by it. I told him all the reasons I thought it was a terrible response. And he says, well, yeah, I thought it was terrible too, but for different reasons. It's well, he got to tell me. And he says, you know, well, I have different scriptures than you have. And I was incensed. I says, no, you don't. <laughs> you don't have <laughs> scriptures that I don't have. And he said, yeah, I, I do. It's in a, in a book called The Pearl of Great Price, which I literally had never heard of. Yeah. I don't know how I lived in America without knowing that that's a, a book of scripture for a major denomination, but I didn't know. And this guy's a reporter. He's at work when we're having this conversation. So he's like, I can't talk about this with you right now. So we hung up the phone. Later, I text him like, you got to tell me about this Book of Moses. <laughs> so he, he sends me a link from the church's website to read Book of Moses. And it's kind of like, here you go. And I was obsessed. Wow. I, I didn't really know what I was looking at, to be honest. And it was kind of confusing to me, but I knew it was something. And I knew that I wanted to know more and keep going. So I read the whole Pearly Great Price and thought, well, 
started on the Book of Mormon. Yeah. I guess I should. <laughs> so as you're reading the Pearl of Great Price and the Book of Moses, like, are you thinking, where did this come from? Like in your mind, where where did you think that yeah, came my, from? My first conceptualization of it was that it was fan fiction. Oh, okay. <laughs> Right. It was <laughs> That's so true. That's interesting. Somebody had taken Moses out of his context in the Old Testament and created a new story where he's a character, uh-huh. but it's not real. Uh-huh. And then it didn't take me very long into the Book of Mormon to start to have this crisis over I think this is scripture. Mm-hmm. I think this is from God. And that just turned my life upside down. I had to give up my position in the church where I was working, give up my ordination. And got baptized. So was that a pretty, as far as your faith community there, was that a shell shock for them? Like, Yeah. The leaders who were over me were incredibly good about it. They were kind and gracious. They made it clear they thought I was making the wrong decision. Yeah. Um, but they were really kind about it. The people in the local community, it was, that was hard on them. Yeah. They feel betrayed, and I get it. Yeah. Did you feel like uh, at times you had to defend why you believe these things, or they tried to no, say, No, here. mostly I felt like... I know you think I'm crazy, and even a year ago, I would have thought I was crazy too. Here, you read this book. You tell me what it is. Uh And none of them, I don't think, took me up on that. I didn't feel defensive about it. I think I understood their position. Yeah. That's a crazy thing to do. Yeah. So they they were surprised, but it wasn't a a traumatic experience for anybody, you think? Yeah, I think there was a little trauma. Yeah. Trauma. And Maybe the, we won't go into that. Yeah, part. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's the. But that, I, I guess I asked from a perspective of we see sort of the same dynamic in our church. You know, people come and go, and, and sometimes we celebrate the coming. Yeah. And we sort of you know really are passive aggressively negative on the leaving, right? And and so it's interesting to see how that unfolds. And so leaving that context, what did you think you were going to do with your life? I mean, were you a therapist and counselor so, at that time? Yeah. So I have two master's degrees. I have a master in divinity and a master in counseling. Okay. So I've always made the bulk of my money in counseling and I'm married to a husband who provides for our family. So it wasn't a financial oh, okay. crisis. Had it been a financial crisis, I think it gets way more complicated. And there's plenty of people who they make their living working for a church. There's no way they could walk away from it. Yeah. So I was in a situation where it, it made it pretty easy. Yeah. And with uh, your family dynamics, like did your husband join the church or you, you're the he, solo member? Here? I'm the solo member here. He did <laughs> not. So, you know, we're working that out. Yeah. Well, good. But it's I'm glad it's always good to hear that those work out, you know, and yeah. you're, you're figuring that out. Yeah, we like, still like each other. Okay. We're, we're, we're going to be okay. <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, and you were a survivor of, of abuse yourself yeah. and, and it was in the context of a, a pastor, is that? Yeah. So the church where I grew up, actually ended up having kind of one youth pastor after another who abused teenagers. Mm. It wasn't just one guy. There's a whole bunch of them. It's me and about 20 of my peers that I grew up with ended up being abused in this church. My case has already gone through court. Many of their cases are still in the court process just to try and hold this church accountable and get them to change some of their practices around how they're treating teenagers, which actually is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so how did you go through that as, uh, was your, were you a young teenager when this happened? Yeah. So I met that pastor when I was about 14. Okay. My dad had just died. My home life was sort of difficult. And so this pastor and his wife said, oh, we've got a room. Why don't you move in with us? Hmm. And I thought that was like the greatest thing that had ever happened to me in my entire life. Hmm. But it was all just a setup. This pastor, he was manipulating all kinds of things to get access to me. And that's yeah. 
yeah. how that began. Wow. And so coming out of that, do you, I mean, you later go on and, and have a life in, in the gospel and in, mm-hmm. in Christianity and the yeah. church. And I mean, did you go through a crisis of faith like, because that pastor sort of represented God in your eyes, right? Um, so most people do. Most people yeah. in my position walk away from the church of any kind and never go back. Yeah. That's the reality. I am the exception to that rule, but it doesn't mean that faith was at all easy for me. I really had to struggle and fight to stay somehow connected to like knowing God was true and not being able to figure out at all how that worked. Mm. So it was hard for me. Um, but I didn't actually ever have a time when I left. I've been a church going girl my entire life. Yeah. But that's pretty unusual for um, clergy abuse victims. Yeah. And did that experience uh, motivate you to go into therapy and become a counselor? Well, by the time I was sort of ready to pick a career direction where I could make money, I'd been in therapy for so long and I'd been around therapy for so long. I I think my therapist at the time kind of joked like, well, you might as well like go get the education and get paid. You know what this world is like. Uh And it it was kind of like, yeah, I guess you're right. (laughs) And so that's what I did. Uh, That's great. So- when did the, did, were you thinking about this concept as far as pastor and youth interviews before you joined the church or no. how did that begin? So the way that it happens in our church, in the in the Latter-day Saint church, is very formal, hmm. right? Like a bishop interview with a teen is a thing. Yeah, like and every six months we're, yeah, it's, it's on a schedule. Completely <laughs> formalized. The same thing happens essentially in other churches it doesn't happen with the senior leaders of the church. It happens with like whoever they have leading the youth and it happens on a ad hoc basis. And so my thinking about that has always been kids, teenagers need some safe place where they can talk about these issues because they're living through these issues. And how do we make sure that nothing weird is going on? And I kind of came to this conclusion of the people who say, no bishop interviews at all, or no bishop interviews that talk about issues of chastity, it throws out an awful lot of baby with the Mm bathwater. And you lose some really, really good things that our kids benefit from and need, because otherwise we're just abandoning them in an incredibly confusing world. Yeah. So being in the church, you saw the the formal nature of the interviews in our church and and then the the attacks against that that model. Mm -hmm. And then you thought, you dive into some research? Yeah. So I, I started thinking and talking to people and wondering, like, what, what is it that a kid needs? What does a teenager need who, um, in two categories, one who has never been through abuse, and then what does the actual abuse victim need? And so there's a guy, um, Dr. James Furrow, he did some research on how do young people make decisions? So his, like his interest is how does decision-making happen? And this wasn't a religion-focused study? Or- um, so his is, he divides the kids into two groups, okay. the, the religious youth and the non-religious youth. And he wants to see, is there a difference in how these kids make decisions? Not all his research is religious-based and none of it is Latter-day Saint-based. Right. He's just looking broadly. So what he finds is the kids who do the best, have the best outcomes are kids that have at least three adults in their life with whom they can talk about issues of faith and help them contextualize that, especially on sensitive topics. This does not mean that mom and dad's role is unimportant. Mom and dad's role is critical. But during the adolescent years, their job is to move away from mom and dad a little bit and try and explore the world 
for themselves for the first time while mom and dad are still a safety net. Yeah. So Furrow's research says you need at least three. And then he goes on to say among those three, there really should be at least one person who is the highest up leader that that kid could actually get access to, Mm. right? So the highest leader in their faith community or their congregation, often that means a pastor, because it does something for adolescents when they know that the person who is in charge of the whole ship actually cares about the little things, the minutia of their lives. That does something really helpful for them. So some of the criticism about bishop interviews is, oh, parents could do it. Absolutely, parents can have those conversations with their kids, and they should. Kids still benefit from a non-parent doing it. Sometimes people say, oh, the young woman's leader or the young man's leader could do it. Sure, but if you want the kid to have the most benefit, he needs to understand or she needs to understand the very top person, the person most responsible for that congregation cares about them. Yeah, and and that's an interesting point because you think of maybe in a secular context at a school, like if a kid wanted to speak with the principal of the school, that'd be a very awkward thing. Like it just doesn't happen that you set an appointment unless you're in trouble. I mean, they'll set the appointment. Even in Protestant churches, most Protestant kids or evangelical kids have no access to the person who's their pastor. Hmm. I have some quotes in my presentation from a group of, of Protestant teenage girls, and one of them says, my pastor wouldn't know me if he saw me. Mm. He might know who my parents are, but he certainly doesn't know who I am. And so there's this weird like disconnect. They get lots of support on sensitive issues from their immediate leaders, but they get nothing really from the top leaders. And so Latter-day Saint teens are in a great position and they get benefit from that. A completely non-LDS researcher points it out to us. Yeah. And so even to highlight just that, how crucial that relationship is or that connection between a bishop mm-hmm. and the youth in the war. And obviously the, more and more the the general church is encouraging yeah. us to really focus on that, but to see the research, how, how important that is. And, and to really ask yourself, you know, I call it the, the, the principle of approachability, like how approachable are you really yeah. as a bishop? Because I remember as a youth setting up an appointment with the bishop mm-hmm. and I was scared. I thought I was the only youth in the history of my ward oh. that had to ever go to the bishop, right? right? And again, he was a great guy. It wasn't his fault, and he was generally approachable. But just to even normalize that experience of setting a point with a bishop or I've got my six-month interview, and yeah, this is great, you know, and really normalizing this idea of of meeting with a leader. It's such a common theme in the sort of Latter-day Saint-specific research that I looked at from the Uplift Youth Bishop Interview Study. And person after person after person in there says, it was so nerve-wracking or it was so nervous And then the question is asked, would it have been better like if your mom and your dad had been in there? And almost everyone says, no, it doesn't make it any better. Yeah. (laughs) Or if it's just another adult from the ward, most people say like, it's already nerve wracking enough. Don't put me in front of a whole panel of people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then there's almost really no way to get past completely the the nerves of that experience, especially when something traumatic's happened that you need to share with somebody. And and we're seeing this movement. Obviously, there's been the option opened up for leaders. If the person in the interview wants to invite someone to come in, that, that option's there. Is there any benefit, especially a male bishop talking with a young woman, is there any benefit for that bishop to be proactive and making sure that their young women's president is there or anything like that? You know, I think it should definitely be an option and that the girl herself, the young woman herself should be allowed to choose it or not choose it. Yeah. But don't like don't choose it make for it her. the status quo. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Really because good. there might be things she wants to say to her bishop. She actually doesn't want to say to her young woman's leader. 
Yeah. Right. She her she didn't have to face her bishop every single day. Yeah. <laughs> you know, every single Sunday school or whatever, and she might want and need some privacy, and that's okay. Now, obviously, in our church, the bishop's always going to be a male, mm-hmm. and so. Would there be any benefit for a, say, a bishop says, you know, I want to make this safe as possible. I'm going to designate the young woman's president as sort of the bishop role. Obviously, she can't handle her penance, but maybe she'll handle more of these interviews. Is there any benefit? Yeah, to that? you know, I I can see the wisdom in it. Yeah. Um, I also think that you lose out on a little bit of like that young woman knowing the guy who's at the top of my congregation yeah. knows me. He knows what I struggle with. He cares about me. He's helping me through this, or he would help me through this. It's fine to have the young woman's president or whoever be doing those interviews, but the girl doesn't get the fullest benefit from knowing that her leaders care about her in that specific way. Mm. Yeah, that, that makes sense because there really is that connection to God, not that the bishop is closer to God than others, but But he is a representative perception. of yeah. God. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And so the fact that they have access to that person, yeah. it really— that. It, it makes the the male female dynamic just not as important yeah. in that. And this is this isn't just Jen's opinion. I mean, these are research based yep. perspectives. That's right. right from, it is it is also my opinion, right, but yeah. it's also shown in the research. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I want to make sure we highlight that. So you boil down sort of this this research to four reasons why mm-hmm. bishops should be meeting yeah. with youth on a one to one scenario. And yeah. maybe let's just go through those. Yeah. Where, where should we start? Yeah. First reason it is the developmentally appropriate for them. Teenagers are dealing with this stuff. It's not being introduced to them, right? If you picked a random 16-year-old kid in your ward and you could drill down into their thoughts and realize they had never had a sexual thought by 16, you would start to go, huh, something like, is something developmentally wrong with them? Like, is there a hormonal (laughs) issue here? Is there a genetic issue? Like, we expect that in a 16-year-old. And so the appropriateness means they need support from their church, right? Reason two, this is a very high expectation religion. And if teenagers are going to stay in this church, they will have to get used to the fact that you are accountable to your bishop on a number of behavioral markers, including chastity, for the entirety of your adulthood. That's just how it is. Mm -hmm. And... If we were to say, oh, teenagers shouldn't have to worry about interviews or specific questions in interviews, and then, oh, now you're an adult, now you have to. Like, that's a lot of shock to the system. I believe they need an on-ramp where they're able to have these conversations with their bishop, still have mom and dad in the background as a bit of a safety net for that kid to process if they need to, mom and dad to help them understand, like, gosh, maybe this is something you should talk with the bishop about. A woman told me a story Last week, she says her 12-year-old son saw something online that he understood to be pornography, but when mom saw it, she sort of almost chuckled to herself and thought, that's not actually what pornography is. But the kids saw it and felt that it was, Uh and so he came to her, actually, and said, I think I have to confess to my bishop that I've been looking at porn. And mom was able to help him contextualize that and say, like, of course you can talk about the bishop. We would talk about this with the bishop. But here's a little broader context so that you can understand going in and telling the bishop, I am addicted to porn is not exactly what's happening here. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's helpful. Speaking in the context of developmental, like this is developmentally normal for them to have these types of conversations. Mm -hmm. A lot of people may say, especially when you talk about expectations, like, Mm -hmm. well, we're in a very high expectation church, which I completely agree with. And that's the problem. They, there's too much expectation, but I would guess, again, I'm just, this is my gut feeling 
that expectation, a certain level of expectation is healthy in a mm-hmm. developmental process. Yeah, absolutely. Right? The same research, James Furrow, he says two things also help kids. One is that they have high expectations as long as they're reasonable. Yeah. Right. So it can't be unreasonable. I think our current expectations of youth are reasonable. Mm-hmm. The other PC says is that when they admit to something bad or something wrong or they mess up, that that is treated redemptively. He wouldn't, he doesn't use that word, but it's treated in a way that says we can make this better and not, oh, you're now condemned for life. You're damaged for life. That the kid can see, oh, there's a path out of this muck that I'm in. And that's what a bishop is for, to mm-hmm. help with the repentance process. Yeah. And I love the, the emphasis on reasonable, because I think that's something that through these interviews and interactions, a leader can really gauge. Because for some individuals, going on a mission is very is not very reasonable, like mm-hmm. depending on their background, maybe they're on the spectrum somewhere yeah. or whatever. And so that expectation can develop a lot of shame, which isn't healthy for that individual to experience. And so for them to gauge, like, and then help that individual understand what the expectation yeah. is the, for them. The church has addressed this for a long time, too. All the way back to 1981, they put out a pamphlet called Guidance for Bishop Counseling or something like that. And in you the know, pa- you showed a picture of yeah, this, and this I thought, what, what is this book? Where, where do we, <laughs> is that a print, or where did you it, get that? You know, somebody passed it off to me, and I— well. I actually had a minute of like, am I supposed to be seeing this? Is this part of the secret information? Because <laughs> I promise you, nobody's getting that pamphlet today. Right, but, right. Yeah. But basically, what that pamphlet is is telling a bishop is, you're going to treat a 12-year-old, like maybe a 12-year-old girl, quite a bit different than you're going to be questioning an 18-year-old boy who's ready to go on his mission. Yeah. That's an entirely different expectation set of questions. And maybe she doesn't even need to be questioned on some of those things. Whereas he really does. He's about to go off on this mission, this commitment that he needs to have some things in order. Yeah. Right? That maybe in, not in the same way that a 12-year-old girl needs and, to And sexually, about. he's matured, maybe had interactions with, you know, with girls yeah. and things like that. that yep. That some questions need yeah. to be Yeah, so that's a, appropriate for him. Well, it wouldn't be appropriate for a, a 12-year-old. Yeah. And also in this context of developmental, I did, uh, man, and I hate the fact that I can't remember his name, but I did an interview with a professor up at BYU-Idaho about the importance of a father figure in the lives of young women. Yeah. And how that even shows, like the research shows that if a young woman did, did not have a strong father figure, her body goes into puberty earlier yeah. as in order to attract a male so that she has that protection, yeah. right? And so- It's crazy. When there's not a strong father figure at mm-hmm. home and, or it could be better, or like you said, you know, one of these three, if there could be multiple strong male figures in, yeah. in their life, Young women sense that as a form of protection and safety, and yeah. that only helps their in their developmental work, yeah. right? The the girls who are in that scenario don't have a father at home. They're probably some of the trickiest ones because when they sense that safety, they really want to attach to it. And sometimes that goes beyond what your a normal attachment to a bishop that you would see, right? You see her really wanting his attention. And and that's not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Right, that's to be expected, and so you put women leaders around her, and you put other people around her to help her, and that—that's what happens in a faith community, right? That's what we're supposed to be. What is a church supposed to be to a girl like that? Yeah, supposed to teach her. Here's how you interact with people. Your bishop cares about you, and you can confess these things. And here's lots of other women in your life who care about you. Yeah. It, it's a whole community coming around her. And I can see from a bishop perspective or a male leader perspective, you think, okay, this 
girl's drawn to me like this. I better like back off or create mm-hmm. some boundaries where you can be more open and saying, well, maybe there's some attention that's needed here that we can provide as a group, yep. you know, in appropriate ways that can really help her in her development. Yeah. Right. Yeah. People get scared of girls like that, to be honest. Yeah. But sometimes it's cry for help. Yep. Right? Yeah. Okay. Number two reason. Second um, reason. Yeah. So second reason why is the peers of Latter-day Saint teens are getting this kind of support. Hmm. There are churches all across the country where adults are having conversations with teenagers about sensitive issues, including chastity, and it happens all the time. One of the criticisms that the people who are worried about bishop interviews make is to say, we are the only church that wants an adult to Mm. sit and talk with a kid about sex, and they have no idea what they're saying. They do not know what they're talking about when they say that. This happens in every church across the board. Catholics do it in one particular way, right? They actually have a a more frequent and formalized process through which kids are talking to their priest about issues through the confession. When you hear confession, if you think one of those booths with the curtain that closes and the kid is totally confidential, that's just not even how it happens anymore. Hmm. Confession happens in the priest's office and they're sitting in daylight facing each other and it's just a conversation. And so Catholic kids are doing that all the time. Protestant kids have access to adult leaders. They're not the top leaders, but they are adult leaders who are talking with them about these issues. There's an unscientific survey, but one survey had a, a Protestant leader say, here's how you do it. Sit down with the kid, your back to the wall, the kid facing you, which is facing the wall, so that when they cry, nobody can see them cry. They just see you. That kid's looking at a wall. Like huh. it was his clever little plan <laughs> about like <laughs> yeah. how to manage the tears of teenagers. But it proves the point of Protestant evangelical leaders are having these conversations with kids all the time. And the kids' parents may or may not be informed that this is happening. Our Latter-day Saint kids, their parents know when the bishop interview is scheduled. Mm -hmm. They know the questions that are going to be asked. There's much more opportunity for them to come and support and be aware of, like, maybe it went wrong. Like, somehow to offer a safety net to that. Whereas Protestant kids have those conversations, go home. Don't say a word to mom or dad. Mom and dad don't know that this is going on. Yeah. So this is a very normal thing that every religious experience generally is is having. Yep. Right? Yeah. So their friends at school are going to be having these. And, and so let's not leave out yeah. those. Right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Why shouldn't they get that kind of support too? These are issues that they're dealing with. Yeah. And hopefully this doesn't take us too far off. But in these interviews that are typically happening, you know, one criticism that often comes is that the type of questions that maybe mm-hmm. uh, the, the leader asks, maybe it's not you know, do you keep the law of chastity? Maybe it's, do you masturbate or yeah. these things? Like, is are there wrong questions or inappropriate questions like that to ask? Yeah, so what I found in talking with lots of people, reading the Uplift Youth Bishop interview study, most of the time, what it seems to me, and I'm open to input on this, but what it seems like is a bishop who is trying to find the edges or the contour of what the kid is actually talking about. Yes. Because no kid, or very few kids, are able to sit down with their bishop and say, I masturbated three times, and here's exactly when and how it happened. And Like, they're not doing that. They're shy, and they're using slang language, and they're not wanting to. And so the bishop, the poor guy, what are the edges of what we're even talking about? Mm -hmm. That same 1981 pamphlet gives advice of, you're going to be tempted to just leave it vague. You got to ask questions sometime to figure out what actually has happened or what is actually the temptation so that you can actually offer some appropriate help, right? General help helps generally, specific Mm -hmm. help helps specifically. 
And yeah, and so yeah, there are questions that get asked that I think people, interviewees themselves, as well as their as their parents, get a bit offended about. Can you believe he asked if I blah blah blah? Well, he asked a question that went a tiny bit further than what the contour of what you're talking about is, and you got offended at that. But he's just sort of grappling in the dark to figure out what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think that's the only scenario. I think that there are bishops who have asked things for their own gratification or titillation or whatever. Yeah. That happened. Clearly that happens. But that is not mostly what we're talking about when we talk about bishop right. interviews. And again, that's the, the general rule. Like, obviously, even as after four years of being a bishop, there's some level of awkwardness still for me in some of those you know, even with adults that yep. I'm not looking to be, you know, to take it to a place just for my own fulfillment. And I get there are individuals out there that mm-hmm. maybe that's where they're going. But it, to me, I would get, guess it's such a small minority that, and I'd like that leading with the idea of, I need to know what's going on here, what they're trying to communicate so I can offer the best resources or the yep. best help, yep. you know, it, and determine that way. What was I going to ask? Uh, oh, and oftentimes in my experience, like as an individual came in to share that they'd been struggling with pornography, mm-hmm. I'd often ask, well, was masturbation involved in that? And they'd all, always say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they didn't, they wanted to give me just the minor, like, yep. here's, there's a general problem. And so by me asking a question, a follow-up question, it helped them open up and be like, okay, I guess this is a safe place to, to talk about some of this. Yeah. yeah. And I think sometimes the question just overshoots the edge of what the kid is talking about. Right. Can you believe the bishop asked me if I was turned on by this? Like, well, the poor guy was just trying to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, right. All right, third reason. Third reason. Even though bishops are not specifically asking about abuse, the question of chastity is in the ballpark enough that a teenager might disclose abuse. In the United States, the average age of first disclosure is 52. Yeah, this shocked me. Yeah, it's, I think, so that's a tiny bit old statistic. That statistic's about five years old. My guess is that it has dropped a tiny bit with the whole Me Too thing, mm-hmm. but probably not a ton. Yeah, I mean, it should be in the teenage years, right? Yeah. I mean, it's I don't know, very, maybe. It's very rare for a teenager to disclose on purpose. Yeah. So here, so. And would you say those at that age, they're disclosing one that happened in the teenage years or just in general? Um. Just a, so, the further away you are from the incident having happened, so like if they were abused at age five, the further away you get, the less likely the kid is to say something. Hmm. So the closer you are to the event, the more likely they're going to talk about it. That's kind of the best time to catch it. Hmm. But they learn to stuff it down. They learn not to talk about it. They learn. And if it happened eight years ago. Yeah, what's the, the point of bringing it up? Yeah. They may think, right? Yeah. So to understand this point, you really have to understand how teenagers disclose. No teenager is going to walk into their bishop's office, plop down, hey, bishop, I want to tell you I'm being molested. Like, it just does not happen. 75% of the time when teenagers disclose, it's accidental. Hmm. Meaning they say something that the adult goes, that does not quite make sense. Why would you have been in that situation? Or... The difference between the adult brain and the teenage brain really comes down to that kind of logic, like picking apart statements. Teenagers can kind of do it, but not as good as adults. So a teenager will make a statement that doesn't make sense to the adult. The problem becomes if a bishop has in his mind, oh, it would be wrong or it would be abusive for me to ask too many specific questions, they're going to miss all of those, right? The kid says something that doesn't add up. Bishop is afraid 
to enter into that area. So he just lets it go. Right. And the kid doesn't even know they were making an accidental disclosure, but they were. Yeah. The other category, the 25%, when teenagers make a decision to disclose, they do it in a way that's incredibly aggravating, I think, for adults, because we just want to hear, like, what's the information? But teenagers don't do that. They will give you one tiny little breadcrumb that they could very easily take back if they needed to. So they'll tell you something true watch for your reaction. And if your reaction is not good or doesn't feel safe or feels overblown, oh, no, 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 I, I was just kidding. You took that serious? Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's 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 aggravating to adults. It's especially aggravating to adults who care about kids disclosing because they'll put out and take back information. Almost every single teenager who discloses also um, recants at some point. That's mm. a 100% common experience. And there's a lot of reasons why. That's a different interview. Um but the kid, if they have made a decision to disclose, they might put a little something out there. My encouragement to bishops would be, if something sounds weird to you, just ask some follow-up questions. Just receive it in a way that tells that kid you're safe to talk to. Let them see what they do with it. When I disclosed my abuse, it took like five or six hour-long conversations before I had kind of breadcrumbed enough out to this person who I was telling for the first time that this is the scenario. And many times in that conversation, I tried to take it back. Mm. By the end, we actually got to this point where it, it was another man in our church that I was disclosing to. And he says, you know, I'm trying to put together everything you've told me. And, and it, all I can make it add up to is something really bad. And in my teenage head, I thought, what can I make up? that's really bad that would fit all the details that I've said. And I literally tried to think through this plot of like, maybe I could tell him we've been like secretly robbing banks. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like yeah. it's the most teenage kind of thinking possible. <laughs> and it was sort of the last move of like, okay, you're right. I'm caught. Like this is what's been going on. But it, it took a lot. It took hours of breadcrumbs to get to that point. Yes. Yeah. And so, and I remember even in other contexts of, in the bishop's office, you know, somebody gives you a little bit and you think, well, listen, you know, just what's the whole, what's going on here? You need yeah. to tell me, right? And you can almost feel frustrated and try and push it out of them, right? But yep. it's better to step back and just naturally, and it could be over several interviews, yep. right? And maybe it's a six-month interview and you think, well, hey, why don't we meet in a few weeks and yep. we'll, we'll read up on some more scriptures or something, right? Because yep. maybe there's more that'll unfold yeah. as they know that's a safe place. Yep. Right. Yeah. And and not being afraid to ask the follow-ups. I think since giving my talk, I've talked to a, a handful of bishops who have said something like, I've been worried. If I ask a kid questions, am I unintentionally abusing them? I don't want to, but mm -hmm. I want to do a good job by them. And follow-up questions are not abuse. Yeah. Right. Yeah. One of the criticisms from the the people who are against bishop interviews is that they're grooming. Grooming is a process that an adult takes a child through to prepare them to receive sexual abuse. Grooming requires intent. So just a conversation about sexual issues is not grooming. Yeah. Parents have hopefully conversations with their kids all the time. Yeah. About this. Doctors do. Therapists. I have teenage clients. We talk about whatever is appropriate that's going on in their lives. That's not grooming. Right. I'm not preparing them to receive sexual abuse from me. And 
the vast majority of time, neither are bishops. Yeah. And would you also say that you're also not going to just accidentally become a predator? Like you'll ask so many certain questions and a switch will flip and suddenly you're a creeper. Like, yeah. like starting with the right intent, you're not going to end up there. Yeah. It, and at the same time, I would say there is some research that says people who become abusers, like they didn't set out to become abusers. Often first abuse is a, a kind of a crime of opportunity, hmm. right? But what it is, is a, an adult who is sort of wounded and needy and struggling through their own things meets up with a kid who's wounded and needy and struggling through their own things. That's not a call to say, let's forget having bishop interviews. That's a call to say, like, bishops, your primary job in taking care of that congregation is taking care of your own spiritual, yeah. mental, psychological health. Like, you got to be on point and that's why you're only bishop for four years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> right. <laughs> or, or even more motivation for a stake presence, just be aware of, you know, because the, the bishop role can be extremely overwhelming and lots of pressure and it, it can beat you down. But yeah. I remember one particular week where I was just exhausted and I the thought came to myself, well, I wish I had a bishop because I'm the yeah. bishop, right? And I'm like, well, yeah, I guess I do as my stake president. But, but just being aware that, you know, a bishop has got to... Self-care. I mean, yep. it's, it's crucial. And yeah. uh, I don't, that's, again, another podcast as far as what that looks like. Right. But, but nobody's going to turn into an accidental predator unless they're dealing with a wound or they're yep. they're looking for a, to fill a void yeah. that's, that's in their heart, right? Yeah. And, and for the most part, abuse, even when it happens with bishops, it's not happening in the bishop interview when there's people in the office next door, there's people yeah. in the hall, you're in there for, what, 12 minutes sometimes? Yeah. like. That's not the the place where it's actually happening. Um, grooming does happen in a context like that, but there has to be intent. Yeah. No one accidentally grooms someone. That's not a thing. Yeah, that's really helpful. All right, so number three was uh, in a one line. Possible disclosure of abuse. Yeah, so it's an opportunity for that yep. disclosure. And number four is just teenagers need a place for self-determination. Uh, they need a place where they can have some privacy. They need a place where they can experiment with I'm taking responsibility for the stuff that has gone on with me mm. so that they can grow into their own faith so that it's not mom and dad's faith that they're living out. Interesting. So mm. reconciling the struggles in their life, they need a structure, a format to step into and say, you know what, Bishop, yes, I have messed up or mm -hmm. I do need to change some things. And, and that's a very healthy yeah. One experience. of the beautiful things in our church is our, our love of family and our belief in family and the goodness of family. And that is wonderful. And the time of life where it's their job to pull away from their family are the adolescent years. And they have to go through that. Otherwise, they grow up just living out somebody else's faith or somebody else's dream when your teenager is pulling away from you a tiny bit or having an opposite opinion of you, that's their job. That's their full-time job is to become an adult in their own right, to go from 10 years old where they're fully dependent on you to 20 years old where they can take care of themselves and they have got to get practice at it. And one of those opportunities happens in a bishop's interview. Yeah. They get to take responsibility for what's going on with them. Yeah. You know, this is just so relieving because I remember – you know, I wasn't a bishop at the time that a lot of this caught the media, you know, with the criticisms against bishop interviews. And it made me reflect and think, oh, wow, maybe I did ask the wrong questions mm -hmm. or maybe I was out of line. Well, I'd handle that differently now. But I just have never met a bishop who 
has these ill intents. And yeah. But we hear of one and we think, well, yeah, maybe it is more prominent. Maybe it could be me. I don't want to fall yeah. into that temptation or whatever. And one of the criticisms that you hear in this conversation a lot is, so what if a kid told a bishop something like this? He's not going to know what to do with it. Mm. He's not a therapist. Oh yeah. And it just, it cracks me up because I'm a therapist. I know exactly what therapists can do. And I can't do what a bishop can do. Yeah. That's not my calling. That's not the keys that I hold. And a kid maybe sometimes needs a therapist and a bishop, but let your bishop off the hook for not being a therapist. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah. He, he has a specialized role in your life. He's not, he's probably an accountant. Yeah. Or something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. okay. Yeah. And, and I appreciate that because. I, I hear that criticism and I think I've never met a bishop who wants to be a therapist or he wants to act like a therapist, but it truly is. I, there's so much stigma around therapy that mm -hmm. it would be strange for a teenager to be going to a therapist every six months, just like a dental appointment. Right. right. And so this is like the gateway to that therapist office is well, why don't you just meet with, you know, Bishop Jones and, yeah. and we'll, this, this may lead to that way, but it, it actually yeah. provides an incredible screening device almost because yeah. Somebody has got eyes on that kid every six months. Ideally, their parents do too, but sometimes their parents do not. There's an interesting bit of research that says teenagers intuitively know the health of their parents' marriage, and they will correspondingly adjust the amount that they're going to disclose to their parents, the amount of trust that they give them, based on what they understand about the intimacy, the relationship between mom and dad. So if mom and dad are not doing well— mm. And there's no stigma about that. Marriages go through bad yeah. years. I get Especially it. Especially those teenage years. Right. right? <laughs> if mom and dad are not doing well, that's actually the time when a bishop's role becomes even more important mm. because somebody's got some eyes on that kid every six months to just kind of see where, how is your faith progressing? How are you going through the things that teenagers go through? Yeah. That, that leads me back to this. I want to highlight this concept of this, like every, every, youth needs three adults, right? And they're yeah. like, what's the, how yeah. did you articulate that? It's James Furrow's research. He says okay. every, every kid for best outcomes, yeah. they need three adults in their life that can help them contextualize their religious worldview into their daily lives, gotcha. especially in areas where it's sensitive, yeah. sex or whatever. Yeah, And it doesn't even have to be an adult who, like it doesn't have to be their formal like Sunday school teacher, somebody who can help them figure out okay, here's what you believe. Here's the situation you're going through. Let me help you apply that belief to the situation. Yeah. And one of those adults for best outcomes should be the very highest leader that that kid can imagine. Gotcha. Who's usually going to be their, their bishop, their pastor, whoever. Yeah. So those three adults, that's three adults other than their parents? Other or? three non-parental adults. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. And the church is structured perfectly for that. Yeah, right? absolutely it is. Yeah. yeah. And- so any advice, on, and, and I think back to that is so true. Like when I think of that, uh, that bishop, you know, that I, I met with as, as a youth who, who, before being a bishop, he was my young men's leader. Mm -hmm. And I saw him, you know, 10, 15 years later, and I just love the man, right? He just means so much to me. Yeah. And that's because I needed that third party, fourth yep. party, whatever of, of a uh, adult figure. And he provided that so yep. well for me. Right. So, and that helps that, Sometimes you can be put in youth callings and it feels like you're babysitting, right? right. You're like, all right, Wednesday night. All right, don't touch that. You know, come yep. over here, stop talking. But to really empower yourself of saying, like, no, I'm one of the three people. Yeah. And that is, 
that's empowering to me yeah. to think, right? It's a very special consulting kind of role. And yes, you end up doing some of the babysitting kind of right. stuff. But parents do too, right? right? And, yeah. and you have to do a lot of relationship building before the kid trusts you that you get to be one of his three people. But what an incredibly holy role. Yeah. Do you have any advice? And, and again, maybe this is another podcast, but to of a youth leader who really wants to be that, one of those figures in, in their life, is there any habits or should they maybe pull kids aside mm-hmm. as during the youth basketball night and, and just talk with them briefly yeah, or any, a, any tips? It's a great question. I have a friend who she is in the Young Women's Presidency in her ward right now, and she expresses sort of this frustration of like, I never get enough one-on-one time. Like, I don't actually know what's going on with them. And my word to her and maybe to lots of people would be there is some of that you can do in the group setting in the the one-on-two or even one-on-three setting. And you can watch for the issues that come up that maybe that kid needs some extra help on. It doesn't always have to be what, you know, just you one-on-one and an adult with a kid. You can do a lot of that through the group setting. I also think the other piece is let the kid define his world or her world on their terms. Mm. Listen to them help them contextualize what they believe into what their world is. Because if you don't understand what their world is, there's no way to context, there's no way to apply it into their world. Can you give an example of what that may look like? Yeah, like, so there's a young woman that I know who, her parents are fantastic. They're wonderful, good people. They work both incredibly intense jobs and they're very tired, (laughs) right? Like a (laughs) lot of us, right? And this girl's complaint is, my, I know my parents love me, but they don't have any time for me, right? And so her youth leader, who's a different friend of mine, is helping her understand there are ways in which you you have to grow, like from being the eight-year-old kid, like, well, you're a 16-year-old kid now. And so there are ways you can grow in learning to tell your parents your needs. Like she ended up writing a letter to her mom just saying like, I know you're busy and I know you're tired, but I need more of you, Mm. right? I got two years left before I leave home and I still need my mom, right? So her leader helped her do that, move her out of this like victim position of, oh, my my parents don't have any time for me and moved her into a thing that says, all right, we believe families are really important and your family experience is not going well. Let's take what we believe and try and help you make some change in your family. Yeah. You know, one of my, I have a five-year-old boy. I'm afraid he's going to grow up and he'll, he'll want to be a hunter or something. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm not a hunter, but if that does happen, great. But I can maybe find someone in the ward or in the community say, Hey, can, can me and my son go hunting with you? Right. Like, uh, I don't get it. Like, I don't even know what to do. So yeah, could we do that? And what a great ministering opportunity. Yep. And that is, but to not put it all on your shoulders as the bishop or even the parent and saying, actually, I have a team here and maybe I could talk with them, reach out to them and, yeah. and realize we're one of three of those adults that make, it's an make a difference. It's an incredible gift to raise a kid in a community. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. And we have the structure. Yeah. It's right here. Any thoughts on, like, is there any caution that you would give to leaders? Like, uh, obviously, you know, you're not going to accidentally groom anybody, but is like, uh, for example, there's a, always a discussion in a ward about uh, rides, being in mm. the car with youth. And yeah. we think, all right, we sort of have to, you know, do this gymnastics of, you know, this adult gets in, so I'm not with Timmy on the way home alone. Mm-hmm. It's the last one I'm dropping off. I mean, should we really, obviously the church has policies and yeah. I'm not saying we're, we're going to ignore them, but how can we mentally reconcile all that? Yeah. In my thinking, there are policies that are like that, that are needed 
They're good. They're going to protect some kids in some situation. You have to do the gymnastics of getting through them. But don't get confused. That's not the same thing as being the kind of adult in a kid's life that they could open up to. Like you are protecting them in theory, sort of from something that maybe might happen, uh-huh. but probably not. Right. You still have to jump through those things anyway. I do think it sends a message to kids of like, oh, huh, they care about, I don't even know if teenagers could totally articulate it. They care about yeah. something here. Maybe yeah. it's me. I think that this gets really dicey because the warning here says when you're with a kid, whether it's a bishop interview or any other kind of situation, and your curiosity about what's going on with them is more about your own interest or your own issues than what that kid is needing to talk about. Like it it might be time to get some perspective to back up a little bit. It has to be about what does the kid need? What not, what do you adult need? Hmm. Right? Like, like right now I have a teenage client who, and it's different because it's therapy, but she has already at like 17 lived a very fast life. And there's part of me that's like, Oh, like, what was this like? Like, that's kind of fascinating. I've heard people do this. What what, what was that all about, right? <laughs> yeah. And I catch myself in the place of curiosity for my own curiosity's sake. Oh, okay. Not, okay, what does this kid actually need to disclose to me and talk about? If my curiosity about what her life has been like never gets quenched, that's fine. Like, that, it's not the point. If you want to be a helper, you actually sort of give up the right to quench your own curiosity and you have to follow them and what they're doing. You also sort of give up your right to have your relationships just be directed by how you feel about the yeah. person. I, I feel I feel drawn to this friend, right? I'm going to spend time with them. And when you're a helper, it doesn't get to work that way. Yeah. And especially with teenagers, they're living a teenage life so different than how we lived it. And so mm-hmm. you may be like, okay, you went to a party and did what? So how did that work? Right. Like, And then you're in, in areas that's just not appropriate, yeah. right? So just watching that, that curiosity. Yeah. In there. Cool. Any other cautions or things that... Uh, leaders should take? Nothing comes to mind. I do love in our church that there's a possibility to make a notation on someone's member record of like, this person has been convicted of this child abuse. When he moves nine states away, Mm. his local leaders should also take that seriously. Don't give him a youth calling. Like no other church is doing that. Yeah. I was part of a group that was actually trying to pressure the Southern Baptist Convention to develop the same system so that they could track predators. They have a humongous problem with it. And they say, no, it's too much work. We, we won't do it. But our church does it. Yeah. And it works fine. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the other thing I want to, to mention was just as far as we were worried about that, there are predators out there. Mm-hmm. And as a bishop, like, I can't imagine having something happen between a youth leader and a youth under my watch. Mm-hmm. And man, that would crush me. And so yeah. we really go to the extreme of being like, you know, too deep leadership. Right? Don't even think about challenging that. To the point that it really impacts the culture. Yeah. But going back to another interview, which we'll probably publish before this one, um, about the the concept of just creating a culture where abuse is talked about mm-hmm. and there's a dialogue, there's an yeah. active dialogue happening in a ward. I think that enough like will begin to especially train the youth of, of showing it's a safe place and a place we can talk about. Yeah. So there's a, I, I live in Seattle. There is a private school in Seattle that spent a ton of money bringing in some people to do education for K through 12 students in their private school about abuse, about disclosure, about like, listen, kids, listen to your intuition. If something feels off, tell somebody. They spent an incredible amount of money to do this. Three girls go to the vice principal and say, 
gosh, we sat through the, the, the abuse class and all of us have some really weird feelings about such and such adult that works here in the school. And the girls got told, don't you be little detectives. We hired safe people. You're fine. Go on your way. Oh no. Like, Oh, are you kidding me? And they opened the door and then slammed it. Yeah. So I love that. I love that idea. Create a culture where it can be talked about and then take it serious and then listen to kids. Right. Yeah. And I think, and again, we're never going to catch every instance. We're in a a fallen world and it's, there's some ugly people out there doing some awful things, but I just appreciate so much that you're you're bringing you're validating this desire for for bishops to have pure conversations that really are there to help, and yep. hopefully we can minimize the abuse yeah. that that is happening out there. Yeah. Anywhere, if people want to get in touch with you, contact you, uh, where would you send them? Oh, you know, I don't know. I mean, do you do like if a if a word in Seattle wanted you to come do a fireside or that sort of thing or? Uh, would you do that or a fifth Sunday <laughs> lesson or I have I would absolutely do something like that. I've done a bunch of stuff okay. like that. If you Google my name, you will find me. Okay. And they can go to leadingsaints.org slash contact. I will forward any email to go. Jennifer. There so. you go. Well, last question I have for you is more just if you're standing in a room full of bishops mm. and youth leaders, what final encouragement would you give them mm. in the context of this conversation? Yeah, please be brave enough to ask kids the hard questions. I know there are some people out there who are saying that even asking about chastity is abuse. And there are people who are saying asking any follow-up questions is abuse. And it is not. Do not abandon those kids that are in your care who are struggling in a world that is so far more sexualized than it was when we grew up. And they are drowning in it. Do not abandon them. Be willing to talk with them. that concludes my interview with Jennifer Roach. Wow, that was a heavy one. I appreciate your grace and patience with us, especially me, as uh, we try and talk about these difficult issues. If there's any concerns or questions that you had that maybe happened during this uh, interview, I'd love to hear it. Feedback is always helpful. So let me know, but please know we're trying to do this from a good place. We all have good hearts and and we want to bring light to these issues, especially abuse. Anytime, um, shower this concept of of abuse with light so that it goes away. We want to be part of that, that effort. So thank you for your patience. If there's any other questions or thoughts that maybe could lead to a second uh, version of this interview, I would love to hear it. So go to leadingsaints.org slash contact and leave us a message. And I remind you once again to text the word LEAD to 474747 in order to subscribe to the Leading Saints weekly newsletter. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.